0: Greetings and welcome to Best Cultural Destinations podcast, People Are Culture. I'm Meg Pierre, host of this interview series, which presents stories of how culture is created, preserved, and shared, one person at a time. People Are Culture podcast celebrates our unique differences and shared human condition and reveals that while the phenomenon of culture is universal, its meaning is personal. Dr. Ulrika Alcomas is Director of Collections and Public Programs at the Aga Khan Museum in Toronto. She has over 20 years of experience as a curator and senior advisor for museum and cultural projects, including roles with the National Museums of Scotland and Glasgow. More recently, Ulrika served as co-director at the Sharjah Museum of Islamic Civilization, as well as Senior Strategic Advisor, to the Sharjah Museums Department and the United Arab Emirates. As Director of Collections and Public Programs, Elrika is responsible for overseeing all of the museum's activities related to collection management, academic research, exhibitions, public programming, and performing arts initiatives. It is a pleasure to welcome Elrika to the People, Our Culture podcast. Ulrika, welcome so much to Best Cultural Destinations, People, Our Culture podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It is my pleasure, and I'm very much looking forward to this conversation, and I would like to begin with a question that I ask uh, each guest, which is, what is culture?
1: Well, to me personally, culture is the fourth essential and existential thing that humans live by and with after water and food and shelter culture is what makes it makes us human and if we use it well it actually even can make us humane wow that is a fantastic answer and so
0: true um, now let me ask you why does i mean you've really implicitly answered this question but to get further elaboration from you why does it matter
1: Because it is the tool and of course it has many, many facets and is stratified in many different ways that says everything about us, but also everything about the others around us. And through the medium of culture, we can reach out and start a conversation between us and others and overcome the differences and discover the commonalities that unite us and um, that are essential to understand in order to have peace and harmonious communities and societies that's very well said i think culture at its best achieves
0: that um, now i'd love to learn a little bit about um, your early interest in Islamic art. And you're originally from Germany, and you began your career in Scotland, which happens to be my all-time favorite destination. Um, Was there a catalyst that spurred
1: your interest in Islamic art? Very much so. In the early 80s, I went to Cairo with my mother, who was visiting a very old friend of hers there, and I just fell in love with the city, with the people, with the architecture, the culture, the food, the artworks, everything. And it was such a powerful experience um, that I decided to um, study everything to do with this culture. And it set me on the path that uh, I have been walking on for 30 years now.
0: Wow, I think that's so amazing. And it's so true that we can take one trip, or have one experience, which can forever, you know,
1: guide the direction of the rest of our life. Absolutely. And you know, sometimes, I do very much believe that um, when something impacts you through the heart first, the brain will follow, the intellect will follow. And the passion that you will bring through this impact will be so powerful that it will carry you through in your search for reaching that dream of yours. Well,
0: that's been my experience as well. And it's lovely to be reminded of that. So thank you. Now, my own personal introduction to Islamic art was visiting the Alhambra. And um, that experience is still very vivid in my mind. The term Islamic art, encompasses a lot. Can you share your definition and perhaps a couple of examples of pieces that you particularly
1: admire and why? Actually, the the definition Islamic art and, in fact, even the academic discipline um, that builds on it is a complete Western invention of the late 19th, early 20th century. So Uh um, this question actually has two answers. If you would ask a Muslim what Islamic art is, they would tell you that it is any artwork that um, is directly related to the ritual um, of of the faith, so let's say a mosque or a pulpit in a mosque or a prayer carpet or a mosque lamp, that could be termed Islamic art. But um, the way the term that we live by these days is understood much more broadly, and it also incorporates uh, incorporates many artifacts that were actually not made for a religious context at all, but were made for a sophisticated, cultured. Um, upper and uh, middle class in Islamic cities and towns. So, art related to palaces, luxury living, hunting, etc. So, it's very important to understand that this is a this is a term of convenience that really means a lot of things to a lot of different people. In terms of giving you examples. Um, There are so many, of course, around uh, the world and across the centuries. But if I may refer to one particular object in our collection, which our director always terms the Mona Lisa of Islamic art, it's a Persian miniature painting from the 16th century called The Court of Gayomars. And it shows the First ruler of time, according to the Persian Book of Kings, the great national epic of Iran, um, ruling in harmony and residing in harmony over a harmonious universe, a harmonious world of humanity and. Flora and fauna, and it kind of symbolizes a world at peace and a world in equilibrium. And of course, in these fraught times, this is a miniature painting that kind of expresses an ideal that we are all yearning for.
0: Well, that is for certain. Um, I so appreciate your two definitions and making the distinction about what the art form means to the culture. To which it originates from, and then you know how it's perceived by by the the broader world beyond. Um, and um, I learn something new in these podcasts all the time, so that's great. And the particular piece that you described, um, it sounds lovely. Um, I have to, I have to come to the Aga Khan Museum and see these firsthand, but. Um, it sounds beautiful and like an aspiration of, as you say, what we're all, you know, hoping for, um, Now, you were involved in a digital project that was spearheaded um, by the Museum with No Frontiers called Sharing History that looks at arab Ottoman european relations in the 19th century via 10 virtual exhibits. Can you describe the project and your role and the experience of working with other
1: cultural experts on this endeavor? I was involved in this project in my role as co-director of the Museum of Islamic Civilization in Sharjah in the United Arab Emirates, but it was building on uh, earlier projects that I had already been involved in when I was working in the museums in uh, Glasgow and then the National Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh. In any case, um, the project is originally a concept that was born in the 90s. and was at the time supported by the European Commission, with the aim of bringing together European curators and those from the Arab world and Turkey, in a kind of cultural peacemaking uh, initiative. And for this particular project, we were. Jointly looking at a very very fraught period of joint history between Europe and the Southern Mediterranean from the um, from 1815 to the start of the First World War, and the various exhibition elements you see on that um, website and in that digital exhibition were consistently co-curated by. Um, an expert from Europe and an expert from the Southern Mediterranean. So we were jointly rewriting history, revisiting um, the the fraught relationships, but then also, of course, in the process, learning more about each other's histories, discussing those, and realizing that together we are now in a world and in a position where we can transcend these in dialogue. So um, this project was very much bigger and more important than the sum of its uh, individual parts.
0: Mm, Sounds Mm. very powerful. And my next question for you um, kind of reinforces that your work has been all about collaboration and understanding. In 2014, you led a project that was the first collaboration of the Vatican with an Arab country, um, which was a -a one-of-a-kind exhibition at the time, as it not only presented excellent artwork, but also it furthered dialogue between Christians and Muslims. Can you talk about the project and its
1: challenges and rewards and what you learned from it? That was one of the most amazing projects I was ever involved in. And it was, again, in Sharjah. And and it was actually engendered initially by the ruler of Sharjah in dialogue with the Vatican. So it came, it was encouraged from the very top. And basically, it involved the Sharjah team going to Rome to the Ethnological Museum at the Vatican and... Um, With our colleagues, they are looking at the collections that they hold from across the Islamic world. And together we chose the objects and then they invited us to do the research because they didn't have the capacity in-house. And together, we curated this exhibition, which we called So That You Might Know Each Other, which is actually based on a verse from the Quran, uh, where God said that I made you peoples and tribes so that you might know each other. So the whole concept was about collaboration, about reaching out, um, about interfaith dialogue, and the exhibition then came to the Sharjah Museum of Islamic Civilization, and the wonderful thing was not the objects or the exhibition concept, but it was the coming together of the Two curatorial and installation teams from Rome and from Sharjah. And um, the friendships that were forged and, again, the commonalities that came to the fore immediately on the first day were incredible and so uplifting to see. I mean, it was an instant manifestation of hope for a better world. So we installed this exhibition together and then... um, On the uh, opening day, the ruler held a little reception and of course all the various um, uh, delegates and representatives of the Vatican State and of the Pope himself attended and uh, during that occasion the uh, ruler brought forth some historical manuscripts relating to the Gulf region and its relationship with the Pope from the sixteenth century and then suddenly, all these official dignitaries turned into amazed connoisseurs and um, you know partners in conversation over these historical manuscripts and um, completely forgot their official roles. (laughs) And I will never never forget that um, the representative of Vatican State, I think, was the first who then had to leave. And he had tears in his eyes. He said, I have never been part of a project like that. And at that moment, I realized that this exhibition was a success. So it was not about the curatorial prowess or the academic research. It was about a much, much higher goal of, um, bringing people together and, um, you know, celebrating, a, a humanity and harmony.
0: That is just such a wonderful story. And I, I, got goosebumps as you were telling it. And I know for myself, um, I've had moments, um, in my life where I have felt as though I was exactly where I was supposed to be doing exactly what I was meant to do. And, you know, for me, those moments are relatively few and far between, but it's, I'm sure that you had to have a tremendous experience of affirmation personally
1: for me it was never about the personal um recognition it was always about the greater the greater goal that we were all working on together but of course it is gratifying when you see that um a project like that has such an impact
0: yes and i didn't mean um necessarily in terms of, um, any kind of recognition, but just an internal understanding that you're, you're playing your part, um, I guess, you know, to the highest good is, is what I really meant. Um, well, that is, um, a wonderful story and, um, now coming to the present tense, um, or relatively present tense, you joined the Aga Khan Museum in Toronto in 2017, which defines itself as a museum like no other. Can you share why that is so and what you ins- what inspired you to join its management?
1: I think there are two major reasons. I mean, formalistically speaking, of course, we are the only museum in North America. Do- dedicated exclusively to the arts of the Muslim world. So in that respect, we certainly are unique um, on this continent at least. But it is also the context in which this museum was born and the organization that this museum ultimately belongs to, because we are, of course, part of the Aga Khan Development Network through its cultural arm, the Aga Khan Trust for Culture. And all these um, um, agencies, if you like, are actively involved with education um, of development of bridging cultures, um, capacity building for uh, communities and societies, and really ultimately making the world a better place. So we have written in our mission, on the one hand, of course, to highlight the achievements of Muslim civilizations through time and space, but Beyond that, we actively are called upon to use our collections for the good of um, our community and our society, for um, driving pluralism and uh, really starting intercultural conversations that, again, bring people closer together.
0: Mm. And to step back a little bit for people who... May not be familiar uh, with the Aga Khan um, uh, Cultural Trust, or indeed the Aga Khan. Can you explain the um, uh, the foundation and the mission and the the backdrop?
1: Yeah, I mean, this museum was uh, founded um, by the, uh, His Highness the Khan, is the 49th spiritual leader of the Ismaili Muslim community. It was opened in September 2014. And it contains, as such, a collection of about 1,200 Islamic artifacts that were brought together by His Highness's family, uh, starting with his uncle and his wife, and um, really giving a very good overview of the art across the Muslim world, from North Africa to the borders of China between the 7th and the 19th century. So we have a very important collection of works on paper, manuscripts, folios, miniature paintings, I already mentioned one, uh, metalwork, ceramics, glass, etc. And every single one of these objects has the potential to tell a multitude of stories about um, not only other cultures and other regions, but also about the timeless concerns and preoccupations and joys of um, human beings Mm. so our we see our collection very much as a catalyst for conversation and also as a point of inspiration for all the public programs that we do so including of course education programs school workshops and um, a very vibrant and diverse performing arts program as well
0: Mm. well that Um, Is a perfect segue into my next question, which is that you are the first to hold the position of Director of Collections and Public Programs, (laughs) um, a newly created role that oversees all of the museum's activities related to collection management, academic research, exhibitions, public programming, and performing arts initiatives. That is a huge assignment. Um, What have your priorities been?
1: The most important thing really has been to forge one team because traditionally, of course, all these divisions work relatively separately in a museum context. But for us, it is very important to look at our work holistically in order then really to crystallize out the important themes and topics. So, our curators have continuing conversations with our education colleagues and our performing arts colleagues about how the themes that, for example, are expressed in our major exhibitions then flow organically into the related a public program into the concerts and showcase performances
0: that makes perfect sense and it's i know not always easy to achieve that kind of holistic coordination across an organization um, now you recently gave a talk on the colorful spring traditions reflected in islamic art and culture could you share some of those with us
1: Yes, of course, um, perhaps most importantly, because it is such a universal story, is um, the importance of the tulip, which, of course, here in, in Canada is just finally starting <laughs> to get a little head out of the ground. We are all desperately waiting for some color in our gardens because the winter has been really cruel to us this year. Yes, I know. But, um, of course, the, the tulip originally... Um, was at home in the steppes of Central Asia, in Iran, and in Turkey. And then in the um, 16th century, tulip bulbs were brought to Europe, first to Austria, and from there they traveled to the Netherlands. And uh, there they became a complete obsession and they were traded for enormous sums at um, the Amsterdam stock market, uh, to at prices that sometimes, you know, for the same price, you could buy a mansion in Amsterdam. So it became a real craze. And, of course, ever since then, the tulip has been associated with the Netherlands. Interestingly, um, during the Second World War, uh, thanks to the fact that Canada gave shelter to um, the crown princess and her little daughters, um the Dutch tulips then became a feature in Canadian gardens because the princess, later queen of the Netherlands, in gratitude to Canada after the war, um, started a scheme of having... Tens of thousands of tulip bulbs sent to Canada every single year, to Ottawa in particular. Mm-hmm. So now they are a familiar sight together with the narcissus, narcissus and the daffodils. But originally, both these flowers actually came from much, much further east. Huh, isn't that interesting? I
0: never knew that. I knew about the the craze and the exorbitant prices, but I had no idea um, of the original origin, so
1: that's cool. Well, especially, you know, because the tulip ever, before the tulip ever arrived on our doorstep in the West, it played a fundamentally important part in Ottoman Turkish culture, um, where it was not only um, a highly sophisticated hobby to cultivate tulips of many different types and shapes, but um, it was also a very powerful uh, visual metaphor for poetic and spiritual um, images. So it had very great meaning, and you find it across the arts of the Ottoman Empire at the time. You find it woven into textiles, on ceramics, in miniature paintings, and so on. So it really, really is associated with very sophisticated symbolism within the lands of the Ottoman Empire that, of course, was ruled from Istanbul. And in Istanbul, there were many tulip festivals that were supported by the government. And then by the early 18th century, nearly drove the the treasury into bankruptcy because they became ever more extravagant and um, luxurious.
0: Is there another spring tradition that you might share
1: with us? well ever more prominent in canada of course is also norouz which is the um, iranian spring festival which goes back really thousands of years probably has been there certainly before the arrival of islam in the uh, in the country and it really connects with ancient um, beliefs about the renewal of life celebrating um, new departures, the reawakening of nature, hopes for the future, looking um, for good fortune and so on. And um, many communities across Canada now celebrate this, uh, this particular feast here.
0: And are there any particular traditions associated with it or particular activities?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, one one particular element is the so-called hafzin table, where uh, seven items that in Persian start with an S are uh, brought together, including um, new sprouting seeds and even, and that is interesting, colored eggs. Again, um, colored Easter eggs in the west are generally connected with christian traditions but of course again they come from elsewhere have nothing to do with christian uh, traditions as such at all um but were always a symbol of fertility and new life in many many cultures including in iran but also can be traced back all the way to ancient Egypt where uh, people already donated them or dedicated them at temples, at particular spring festivals. So um, there are so many traditions that um, when we look at them seem familiar, but their origins lie somewhere completely different.
0: Yes. I've, I've learned about quite a number of those. And of course, you know, certain societies um, uh, co-opt uh, traditions of people they're integrating with, or people they're oppressing. For in some cases, but um, it is always fascinating to learn about the the cross fertilization of different traditions around the world.
1: Absolutely, and again, it's an occasion for for um, communal peace. Because in so many regions of the world, you will find different religious communities absolutely happily um, celebrating together and congratulating each other on religious occasions. It is a very common occurrence. Right, as it should be.
0: Um, Now, the Aga Khan Museum recently concluded an exhibit, Transforming Traditions, the Arts of 19th Century Iran, which looked at a dynamic, creative, and sophisticated country that was challenged to navigate competing cultural dynamics. Um, This, of course, sounds very familiar, and it's a very contemporary topic. Can you give us an overview of the exhibit and describe some of its pieces and how it was curated?
1: Of course, I'm glad that you say that it sounds like a familiar contemporary topic because that is exactly the way um, I myself with my uh, colleague Bita Purvarsh started thinking about this subject because um, the the core of this exhibition is about the arts in 19th century Iran. But the interesting thing about it is the fact that at that time there was a society – That was in the throes of unprecedented civilizatory change, um, with in particular Western influences and Western impositions coming into the country and seeping into the culture ever more pervasively. Now, in the, in the wake of such a situation, any society and any community normally tends to react in three different ways. There are those that um, turn back to tradition and try their very best to keep the traditions pure, to defend them from outside influences, to renew them, to revitalize them. At the other end of the scale, you have uh, members of the same community who would open heartedly embrace the change and the new influences coming in and rejecting the past and rejecting traditions. And then you tend to have the middle ground, probably the majority, who try to find creative ways to navigate between the traditions and the new things that are coming into their society or their community. And when you look at all of us, and again, particularly here in Canada where we have so many different communities and cultures living side by side and shoulder to shoulder, you will find these same dynamics played out uh, until this very day. So for us, it was really a kind of case study of how a society reacts to fundamentally unprecedented change using the artifacts to glean some of these changes that were going on. And exactly um, the objects that you saw in the exhibition incorporated items that very much uh, tried to reassert Old time-honored Persian traditions, whether that is a 19th century hand-calligraphed and painted manuscript um, of the Khamsa by Nizami, which is one of the classical literary works of uh, Iran, whether it is um, a calligraphic poem that was both composed and written by one of the rulers of the country. So, we have these items but then also we find completely new departures like for example photography um, which was very much promoted by the shah who ruled iran in the second half of the 19th century called nasir Addin shah he himself was a very passionate photographer but also saw the use in um, recording his country and then disseminating the photos to strengthen the national um identity and and in a sense also resistance of his people in the face of ever more uh, pervasive incursions by western powers and then in the middle you get artifacts that very much reflect the continuing uh, cultural and spiritual currents in the country but that stylistically incorporate both traditional elements and new Uh, departures for example more European styles more European scenes and they create artifacts with uh, a very interesting and aesthetically pleasing fusion so that is how we looked at this uh, exhibition and even the title by the way transforming traditions is actually a word play because you can read it in two very different ways on the one hand (laughs) Transforming traditions are traditions that transform. But, of course, traditions can also be transformed and are also being transformed by reality. So in one title, you have these two contradictory currents that were at play in that society at the time. Well, I think
0: that it sounds fantastic, and um, I would venture to observe that while there might be a very diverse population in Canada, I think that, you know, the entire world is seeing um, massive diversification, and I would imagine that there would be lessons in this exhibit for really anyone, anywhere. I'm just curious, um, do exhibits travel from the Aga Khan Museum?
1: Um not as a rule because we do our exhibitions quite uniquely here we curate them uh, for our very specific location and for our specific audiences but um, interesting you ask that because the exhibition that is just coming in the fall this year is a traveling exhibition from the Block Museum at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. And we are the second venue, and from there it will travel to the National Museum of African Art in Washington. So we are always interested to work with partners, and of course this exhibition also contains some of our objects, but... um, as a whole, these large-scale exhibitions are very sophisticated, time-consuming, and substantial. So we are quite happy for people to visit us here at the <laughs> museum. And to see them.
0: Well, that that is a call to action. So uh, mm-hmm. I will I will heed that. Now, transformation is the theme for 2019 for the Aga Khan Museum's programs, and the lineup includes exhibitions that upend historical misperceptions um, and connect cultures. with performances turning fear into art and talks celebrating outstanding contributions of exceptional women. Can you walk us through the process of identifying this theme of transformation and bringing it to life?
1: Well, as I said before, we always look at. Uh the big themes that um, concern society as a whole and at the moment I guess the world at large so fear is something that is uh, kind of around and is lived out and is also tackled in many different ways so um, we look at individuals who have overcome fear through their art for example we had um, a wonderful syrian armenian artist here recently in january and february who obviously had to leave his country in in the wake of major conflict and then um uses his art which on This occasion here in the museum, he created on the spot in our gallery uh, as part of an artist's residency to not only talk about, or let's say externalize his experiences and his emotions related to those experiences, but he also transcends them and he turns all these awful experiences that he had to go through into beauty Mm. and into conversation Mm. pieces that allow him, through art and beauty, to convey and to start a dialogue with his audience and with his visitors. We also have a lot of performing arts um, contributors, musicians or performers that um, are facing their fear um, through their art, whether that is again newcomer and refugee artists, whether that is um, individuals that have to challenge their own communities or that have to find their own orientation or their own identity in the face of multiple pressures, there are many manifestations of fear and many creative ways of overcoming them and we are really also seeing the museum as a place where people can come for uh, hope and for considering art if you like as a as as a place of therapy I had a, a tour one evening in the museum and it was a horrible night and I thanked everybody for coming and I said why did you come tonight um, given that the weather is so bad and there was a young man who said to me I come here all the time for me it is therapy Mm. so to give people something that is not only didactic and instructional but that actually makes them feel good, makes them feel welcome, and, as I said, gives them hope, is one of our crucial objectives in everything that we do here. Mm. And
0: I'm thinking, um, you know, I understand that part of the motivation is also to address misperceptions and um, connect cultures. And and what you've just described is, to me, kind of an illustration of people being able to come to an exhibit and feel that sense of connection and feel a sense of identification and not feel misunderstood and, um, you know, believe that, you know, there is a, um, a manifestation of something that they're going through. But in terms of, you know, upending historical misperceptions, can you speak to that? Is, how was is that um, addressed in the lineup of exhibitions?
1: in terms of um, Muslims and non-Muslims? Um, in any context. I mean,
0: if, if part of the objective of the, the lineup is to, um, you know, address misperceptions, is there any particular misperception that um, was in mind when the lineup was created? Or is it just a general uh, general idea to, to get people talking or to get people connecting?
1: Well, I mean, obviously there are a lot of negative stereotypes and misconceptions around about Islam, about Muslims, about uh, Islamic cultures and so on. And uh, we are really um, trying to project an image that makes it clear that um, We are not only, and I mean, I'm talking on behalf of the museum, um, uh, a place where you can learn a lot and have your misconceptions challenged and hopefully even dissolved, but you can actually realize that, you know, uh, Muslims and Muslim cultures from the past into the future are really part of the same world we are all living in with the same interests, the same preoccupations, the same worries, the same aspirations than everybody else. And um, we are really trying very hard to make people realize that there are more commonalities among all of us than differences. And perhaps the moon exhibition that we have at the moment is just one uh, example of that um, the core theme of this is, uh, exhibition of course is the role of the moon in islamic art and culture but we have positioned it in a way that it really also emphasizes the universality of the moon's attraction for all of us and um have positioned it as something that we can all look up to, that we can all share, and that we can also um, share with each other. So um, we are always really looking at bringing out these commonalities and creating a platform where people actually enjoy coming together, enjoy meeting each other, and... um, learning from each other and then also ideally envisaging uh, a better future together because some of the initiatives that happen here and performing arts to me are always one of the most uh, positive markers in that respect. Um, you, You rarely find anywhere else. And again, one of the first concerts I attended here coming from halfway around the world was a performance that combined a metis uh, lead singer with a with an inuit throat singer a female zither player from Turkey a Syrian lute player um Jewish piano player an Iranian percussionist and a Quebecois double bass player. And I spent the entire evening sitting, thinking, how is it possible that these people from these so disparate cultures understand each other at such an essential level that they can make the sublime music? That is amazing. So this is what we are about.
0: Well, that performance must have been remarkable. Um, But I'm also struck uh, by the metaphor of the moon And how, you know, I think for most people, it is at the same time, you know, so alien and yet so familiar. Um, So that's a great metaphor um, for um, reminding people of that. Um, um, Ulriki, tell me, why do you do what you do?
1: Well, for me personally, museum work is about a better world. It is about using objects as catalysts to bring people together and to remind them of their shared humanity, of all that they have in common. So for me, it's never been about, you know, hugging objects in the basement, as I always say. For me, a museum is about people And about creating a space where artifacts can um, transform, can inspire, can be fun and can give you hope that there is beauty in this world that we can all share in and uh, benefit from across our perceived differences and cultural and religious divides.
0: That is a beautiful personal mission statement um yes i've by that for a long long yes, time yes i bet well um it resonates my last question for I'm, you um is best cultural destinations tagline is people are culture connecting is the destination and it seems to me that the the work you're doing is also about connection um In closing, could you share a message with listeners about what connection means to you personally and how you seek to achieve it?
1: Well, I think, as I said before, for me, connection is life. Because if you are not connected as a human being with the fellow human beings around you, you are dead. Mm. You are a walking dead. And especially nowadays, With all the challenges that we all face wherever we live around the world, it is so easy to reach out and to connect. It is so easy just to, with a smile, with a hello, or starting a conversation, to reassure yourself and reassure the others that there is one humanity still out there that we ultimately all want to belong to. And this is, to me, what connection means.
0: That's beautiful.
1: Thank you so much
0: for um, a really enriching and inspiring conversation.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me. I enjoyed it very much.